Welcome back to the In-Laws Podcast. I'm Brienne. And I'm Sophia. We're two law students who created this podcast to talk about law school, law talk, and everything in between. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at the In-Laws Pod and our law school pages at Law and at Brienne and Law. For this week's episode, we have a very special guest that we've been wanting to ask on since the inception of the podcast. This week's episode is Ava, aka Ava, fuck, dot law at TikTok and IG. Ava is a 2L at Yale, originally from California, and she made the move all the way to Connecticut to pursue her JD. This week, we'll be discussing law school grading systems, how they differ between our three law schools and law school elitism. Welcome, Ava. Hello, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. We're so excited. <laughs> no, we were like the first time we talked about having guests on the podcast, you were like the first person we brought up. All right. So our first kind of questions that we wanted to get into was like a brief description of sort of like the course track at Yale, because I know it can be super different at every single school and sort of what classes are required and when you guys have freedom within your schedule. Um, We basically, yeah, 1L fall, we have required courses, which I think are pretty much the same as other 1Ls. We have like Con law, I wrote them all down. We have Civ Pro, we have um, criminal law, and then we also have contracts. And we have this weird writing course that we don't take for credits, and it's only eight weeks. And we do like our 1L memo, our brief, everything. Those are requirements after and our oral arguments, like all fall. And all of that is for credit fail, no grades, no honors, no pass, nothing. It was a beautiful time. And then starting 1L spring, you just pick your classes. The only requirement is you have to take torts sometime before you graduate. You have like a substantial paper that you have to write, which is like 30 to 40 pages. Um, another paper called like a saw you have to write for 50 to 70 pages. And that's pretty much it. Wow. That's like incredibly different. I think it's like kind of fake law school. It feels like, but yeah. You're not even required to take property at any point in time? No, not property, not evidence. We do have to take like certain experiential units and yeah. some course that like for professional responsibility. Um, right. That's ABA mandated. Everyone has to take it. Yeah. So that's, that's it. Which I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing, by the way, I, but we always must pass the bar. So I think it's okay. But yeah, it's always so interesting to me that like all of these schools are so set on the like six courses you take in 1L Mm -hmm. and all think they're so important because it's like the basis of the MBE portion of the bar. And it's like, well, we learn everything else for the bar anyways. <laughs> like a lot of people don't take secure transactions and learn it for the bar. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah. And I will say like a lot of people, like a lot of people do take evidence. A lot of people do end up taking property. Like there are some people who just don't care and don't take it. And I think that's awesome for them. And I love it. But I think most people like end up taking like the classes that like you're supposed to. Um, but I think it's just so nice to get to pick when you take them. Because like one else spring, I got to like do classes I was actually interested in, which was like really nice. Interesting. So we at UNC, we have our entire one else schedule set out for us. The same classes, um, con, crim, civ pro, property, contracts, torts. And then you take a legal writing class each semester. 
um, that is very much graded and UNC is, is very, very intense. Um, and then we don't have any other requirements other than PR, your 2L year. Yeah, ours is basically the same setup. Our just our doctrinals are just like moved around a little bit compared to that. And then after that, we have to do PR and then experiential and then like a couple other ones that are like public law. Um, there's like a process class. So you kind of have to take like admin law or like Concrete Pro, that type of stuff. And otherwise that's like basically it, but we do have, I think like a few more requirements than a lot of schools have. Yeah, and we do have, we have like looser requirements. That's like, you need six credits of a writing class. And then we have a bunch of different writing seminars you can take, which is, you know, for each of them, you write your 30 to 40 page paper and uh, suffer through it the entire time. So you guys have like, a you guys have that paper, but there's like classes you take to write it. You don't just like do it on your own. Yeah. So I've taken a few classes now that I write for. So I did one on um, like criminal justice penalties, um, like the collateral consequences of, of being arrested. And then I took one that was a specific poverty in North Carolina class. I took a movement lawyering class. Gosh, I've taken so many, it's hard to keep track of. I think those were the main ones. And yeah. then my clinic class also counts as it because we write motions. Oh, so it counts as for writing? Yeah, so it can be writing like academic writing or it can be legal writing. So if you're taking a clinic class that requires you to write extensive motions, which we sure did, um, you get your writing credit, but then there's also like the academic research portion that you can do instead. And people typically do the academic research classes like once a semester, mostly because the grading scale is, is better for them than the other classes. Honestly, the GPA bump is a big motivator. Yeah. Um, for us, our writing classes are appellate brief writing. So that's a class that is recommended for 2L. And all of the people who want to litigate, like, fight to get into that class with, like, this one specific professor. Um, so that's, like, a really big deal here. And then we have other sort of, like, advanced brief writing classes, which are not as popular, but are more so, like, if you want to keep up your skills, if you're not really into, like, the appellate world, but you do want to continue writing, you take that. And then all of our seminar classes basically require writing a paper. So last semester, I had two classes where I had to write a paper instead of an exam. And I personally really like that, but some people, they do their own thing. I think that's like similar to us. We have a lot of like seminar classes where you're, you'll write papers, but they don't necessarily count for like our substantial writing requirement, but we don't have like a class where we can like a writing class to write our substantial requirement. Usually people will do that independently with a professor. Like if you already have a paper in your class, turn it into that. Um, but I like our writing system really worries me deeply. Like we got eight weeks of a writing course in 1L and like I think when I went to my summer internship, I was like, oh my God, I don't know how to write like these other students, but you, we like learn by doing, I guess. But yeah, it, it's, it's crazy that we do everything in like one fall. That just seems awful. And I don't feel like we know what we're doing, but it's fine, I guess. 
Well, to be honest, I think like, so if I don't know if your school does it the same way, but at UNC, we do your first semester of legal writing, you write an office memo, a research memo. And then the second semester, you do an appellate brief and your oral arguments. Okay. I, I wrote one formal office memo in all of my internships and externships. They're just not required. Attorneys don't want them anymore. No. (laughs) I don't think it's super necessary to dedicate an entire semester to it. I think you would be much better, like, going harder at the actual research skills. And then like at, at my big law firm, it was a lot of like informal research memos, email memos, stop by my office and explain it to me type thing. True. Over the summer, I don't think I ever wrote a memo, but I wrote briefs. Yeah, I wrote briefs. So I just think like, why, why are we treating them equally? Good question. How many briefs did you end up writing this summer? Me or Ava? Ava. I think I wrote three in total, but like they were like, I think like longer ones. And it was like kind of a back and forth, back and forth. And I did some like sentencing letters too, though. So I think that's why I didn't do as many. Yeah, briefs. I did two briefs over the summer or like motions. Those only really got assigned to like the the two L's who were like hardcore, definitely wanting to do litigation because what they mostly gave us, like, especially as one L's, it was just like research projects, um, different types of proposals, office memos, or things that were just like so small that they ended up being office memos. And like, to go back to your point about spending a whole semester on memos, like I did not find it very useful and I wish we would have almost had like a semester on like research proposals or maybe it's just like the methodology of the writing professors that I had, but almost like tracking your research and like seeing how you are like going down these rabbit holes or like making the decisions that you're making in your research to end up with your final product. I feel like that would have been like way more useful than, than what I did for a semester. <laughs> if we could have like um a two week session in 1L legal writing about like how to explain to a partner that the case they want is not in existence. That would be perf. Some schools have like lawyering classes, which I think is interesting because it's sometimes it's like a combination of that and writing. And I feel like maybe transitioning towards that would be a lot more helpful. Yeah. All right. So you sort of mentioned like the grading, but not grading system of fall semester of 1L. Could you kind of go into that and then explain how things technically like are graded after that point? Yeah, so we definitely have grades. I think a lot of people who like go to you are like, we don't have grades. Like we do have grades, but we don't have grades compared to like other law schools, I would say. It's not as intense. So our first semester, we're credit fail. Like you either get credit or you fail and no one fails. And I've heard like even the very few people who have failed are able to retake their finals or something like that. So like no one fails. Following that, it's an honors pass, low pass, fail system. Um, This is what my professors have told me. I haven't found like a written policy, but basically in like the bigger classic, like classic, like black letter law doctrinal classes, 30% of the class gets an age. And in the past, it's been 
a little looser and professors will give like 40% or 33%. But lately they've been like being really strict about this apparently and being like, no, only 30%. Why? I don't know. Like who cares? But they care. Um, in like writing classes or like clinics or seminars, there's no like curve. Like it doesn't matter. Like professors will just give out the H's they want and give out the P's that they want. Um, but we have no GPA. We have no rank like the H isn't like a 4.0 or something like that. So your transcript will just be like H's and P's or all H's if you are crazy in a good way. Like if you're smart. <laughs> so then like on your resume, you have no spot for GPA, no spot for rank, nothing. You just have like school and like extracurriculars and that's kind of it for. Yes. I think a lot of people include their like undergrads and undergrad GPA, but like in our law school, like thing, no, we don't have anything for rank or GPA. And honestly, like most jobs I've applied for, like do not care at all about our grades or looking to him I think that grades at our school are really like for clerkships honestly and not really for like like any jobs yeah I guess I mean I guess that goes into the theme of the episode like the school name sort of carries like they're like okay they're at Yale don't you see the grades yeah I felt I feel like a Nepo baby like it's been so weird <laughs> going to the no I'm so serious because I'm like I've never experienced this kind of like <laughs> privilege and I'm like what is happening but I think, which like, to be fair, like, I'm not trying to like downplay my accomplishments or be like, I don't work hard, I do, but it's just been really weird, like, sending an email and getting one back right away and like getting interviews so easily. And like, even for big law, that's wild, like the the access people have to it and things like that. So it does feel like the school name carries, but that's slowly changing in PI, which I'm really happy about, though, I've seen. Okay. Interesting. So in a weird way, you guys still do maintain a curve for the larger classes, but it's not, or it's leaning towards like more precise now than it used to be. Yeah, I think it's always been around 30%. Like I can't imagine it ever being something like 50% of the class, but like 30 to the 35 is, yeah, there's a curve. And I think like people want that at our school. Like people are not advocating to get rid of that. Like people want to be able to distinguish themselves because like people are going up against each other for like clerkships and things like that. Right. That's interesting because that kind of like matches up with my school. We keep it about 35% and then obviously 65 for like B's and lower for the larger classes. And then we were talking about this like last week or something, but my school doesn't switch out of the B average. So like Brianne shared her school's um, percentiles, like for the grade for like top 10, top 50, that kind of stuff. My schools are so much lower because we keep the B average throughout the larger classes into all anthrial. And then we only switch to a B plus average in our smaller classes. So if the class is less than 30 people, we switch to a B plus. And then like, that's really your only like more stable option, I guess, to get like an honors grade. And then like everybody's fighting it out like in those bigger classes. Yeah, that's similar to, to my school. I think just the difference is it doesn't translate to a GPA. That's it. Yeah. Um, for anyone curious, Yale follows what's called a delineated pass-fail. So it's not strict pass-fail, except for the first semester. And then it's this high pass, pass, low pass-fail um, that seems to be what more schools are are going towards currently rather than the strict grading curve that the vast majority of law schools are under right now. But yeah, my, my school is very much the same way. We grade to a B plus curve. Um, 
technically it could be between a three, two and a three, four. So kind of B plus kind of not. Um, but we have like a very strict one L curve. And then after one L it gets like a little bit more relaxed, but after one L the curve is actually lower. So it, you can curve to a three, one to a three, four instead of a three, two, which I find really interesting. Yeah, they're like, okay, we can give out more bees now. Yeah, but there's also like these really weird things where a lot of schools will be like, oh, if there's under 30 people in the class, like we don't follow a curve. But UNC is like, we're going to follow a curve no matter what. We live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we used to sort of have an option. I think if it was, I think if the class was less than 16, like if you ended up in like a super small workshop or something, they would just get rid of it altogether. But um, last semester, I had a class of four people. And so our professor asked and they were like, no, you need to keep the curve. So <laughs> that's it's just so silly, too, because it at least at UNC, what happens is whenever you take a seminar, a writing class, a, like a very small class everyone ends up getting A minuses and B pluses because the professor does not want to give anyone a below average grade. So no one ends up getting A's and everyone gets A minuses and B pluses. Do your guys' school have like rank, like numbered ranks or no? Um, we get percentiles, but we don't get exact rank unless you're in the top 10%. And then you also get like um, an email from like the dean if you made dean's list. So that's like the only way that you know, sort of like if you're in like incredibly good standing is like you get an email after grades come out and then our percentiles get released at the end of each year. So at the end of 1L, at the end of 2L, at the end of 3L. Ours is the exact same, um, except you don't even get your number rank unless you're in the top 10 students, not top 10%, um, which is a difference of like seven students at my school. But, um, and then it's actually strange because they only release the top 10%, the top 30% and the top 50%. And for a lot of clerkships, you have to be in the top 20%. So there are a lot of people at my school who don't know if they're in the top 20%. And you have to follow this like really intense policy of like going into a certain office and requesting them release your official rank to you. And then you can like use it for the Oscar system and nothing else. Like you would get in trouble if you put it on your resume. Oh my gosh. So wild. Cause they like, they really don't want to have that big of a focus on rank. And it's like, well, if you don't wanna have that big of a focus on rank, why are you maintaining this curve so hard? Yeah. And also making it hard for people to just get the information that they need so they can send their freaking applications out. Oh my gosh. What are like the attitudes towards your guys' grades at Yale? Like, are people okay with it? Do they love it? Do they take advantage of it? Do they just like not care? I think people, really like the grading system um I think for me I wish it was all credit fail because I don't because stop saying you don't have grades because you do but like this honors pass fail for me has been really great like I don't really have to think about my grades that much like I don't I don't want like a, an appellate clerkship and for my career outcomes honestly it just doesn't matter that much so I feel like I've 
focus so much on genuinely learning but I have a very different personality that's not everyone at the school like I think that a lot of people at the school do care about the H's and are happy they're there and do a lot to get them I think that like getting an H in a class is a lot more than just like at my school doing well it's like knowing your professor and going to office hours and knowing what they're looking for maybe at other schools too I don't know um and so they really like that I think though in general people are so nonchalant about grades and act like they don't care um but you know they're like internally like dying if they don't get the H and stuff like that like at other schools and like oh I didn't study at all or oh I haven't read but it's like yeah yes you did um, which I think is like a thing at law schools that people just yeah. love to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Like 100%. There was a guy, one who after first semester grades came out, he basically told everybody that he did not read a single case for torts and still ended up with a B plus. And everyone was like, fucking okay. Like <laughs> what? Okay. Nice. <laughs> like, congratulations. <laughs> Do you feel at all like because there isn't this hard number to associate with yourself in a GPA or a rank that the opportunities students get at Yale is more dependent on who they know, what families they're from, their race and socioeconomic status and everything like that? Yeah, I think I think even if we did have grades that wouldn't be different I guess I just think that's just like a thing first of all in the legal field like at any law school but I think especially at Yale like if you come in knowing which professors to talk to and who are like the clerkship professors and like who's this person who's that person and like are doing all this crazy networking and you know like what first of all what a research assistant is and who to be a research assistant for and like all these different things like someone like me who comes in I'm already like 50 steps behind even if I had like all the H's to be fair there are students who like come in and did their research and don't come from like elite backgrounds and like make it work for themselves but then they're like playing into that elitism right and like doing all these things that like some people just don't feel comfortable doing um but I think that like even if we had a GPA I think that the kids who are well connected would still probably be better off yeah that's so UNC Law has put together like a grading task force to evaluate essentially if they want to move to delineate a pass fail. And that I think is administration's biggest hang up that they feel like coming from UNC, if we didn't have a GPA, employers would start basing it off of things that they should not be basing it off of, which I understand, but also like are we kidding ourselves? Do we think employers aren't already doing that? Yeah, I also think like something that just like is really real too is just like the Yale law name or whatever, whatever that means. Which like it does mean something because our field is so elitist. I think that plays against that. So like even if you are someone who doesn't come from like a super elite background, like you're still gonna do really well. And like, I think that's why even if we went credit fail, everything would still probably be the same, you know, like in my opinion, like the people who are going to get the appellate clerkships would, the people who are just going to do big law, not clerkships would like, I think there's just so many levels of elitism going on and like weird things that it hurts my head. But like, even if you come in as a marginalized student, you're privileged once you're here. And that's like a weird, it's a weird experience to live. Um, But you have to like accept it and you're like, shoot, now I'm. Now you're here. (laughs) Yeah, I'm here. 
Yeah, I think that's very true. It's the thing of like, the name just carries like so much weight. And once you're entangled in it, like that becomes part of your identity, whether you want it to or not. It's almost like an extra label. Like you get labeled as another Yale Law student and a Yale Law student is going to carry. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm going to say I'm in an entanglement with Yale. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, It's weird too, because like people will then assume that you're like privileged or rich or this and that, which like, please assume that. I feel like that'll just like help you <laughs> out in this field. But I think at the same time too, it's like, it's just such a weird experience to go from like being a community college student that no one talked to, to then you meet people and they're like, where do you go to school? And you tell them, they're like, treat you so differently. Like experiencing that classism and elitism is so sad. Like, it's just a sad experience to like see yourself being treated better because you have some kind of proximity to whiteness and wealth and elitism like that sucks <laughs> yeah it's like the price just went up that's what everybody thinks like if we all had like little price tags on us it's like the school you go to cha-ching like how much money your parents have cha-ching I think one of the wildest conversations I've ever had with like someone that absolutely did not know me. This was the first time I was meeting like my boyfriend's extended family. Um, One of his uncles asked me what school I went to for undergrad. And I was at the University of Delaware because I'm from Delaware and that's the only school you can get in with in-state tuition really. And he was like, you're so smart. Why would you go to a state school? And I like, I feel like I'm still unpacking it to this day. People give state schools so much hate, but like the public education can be really good sometimes. And even if it's not, sometimes that's all we got. Okay. Right. It was like, I didn't have an, there were no other options for me, but also like, it is interesting. UNC is still a state school, but UNC is not treated like a state school by anyone. UNC is, is very much treated like an elite private school. I feel like that conversation really highlights how much, especially people who come from privileged backgrounds or ended up in privileged environments in their adulthood view meritocracy. Like they think if you are so smart, you can get into elites where everybody there is so smart. If you you have these abilities, that means you're gonna go to schools where people also have these abilities, but also have like wealthy backgrounds. It's like, a lot of time, there are so many other factors going into it. And just because you're really smart does not mean you can afford to go to a very smart school. I'm doing quotations there because obviously I don't believe that, but you know, the listeners can't see. Or even that you want to go to one of those schools. Like, I feel like one of the biggest misconceptions I think people have about law students is that all of them just go to the highest rank school that they got into. Um, and I feel like when I tell people I had zero interest in going to a T14 school, they like do not believe me. I know so many people in my position that like didn't want to go to T14 schools, got into T14 schools, rejected them. Just odd. It's not worth, like most people go to T14s with no scholarship. That's crazy. That does not like, okay, to be fair, if you're rich, like sure go. But it's like, if you don't come from like a privileged background, like I did not accept, like, first of all, can't talk because I did go to Yale. That was the high school I got into, but like they didn't give me scholarship. 
there is no way I would take out like a $300,000 loan to go to this school. That is so crazy. But like people will pay just because of all the misconceptions about T14s and like your life is set and this and that, like, that's really not true. And it's not always worth the debt. Like you have to really think about it. it it's not always worth it. Yeah, I feel like it's always those like, it can be on a larger scale, those things that like stand out to you, but it's also in just like little things. Like I often see it in like what coffee shops people choose to go to, what restaurants people eat at a lot. And mm -hmm. I feel like the restaurants can be like really telling. And it's always super interesting to see where people are eating, like what their hobbies are too. Like some people have like really expensive hobbies and I'm like, how are you paying for that? Like, what do you mean you're horseback riding on the weekends? For me, it's always the apartment. Cause like a lot of people go to school in California, New York and baby, I'm from California. And if you're living in LA in that apartment, you're spending like $5,000 a month on your rent every month in law school. Like the loan is not paying for that. There's no way. Yeah. Here, a lot of people, well, a lot of people have their parents pay their rent for them, right? But also, like, me and Soph have both talked about, like, there are parents who have bought homes for law students here. Yeah. Houses, condos. Like three apartments. years, they're going to be there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, in full? No mortgage? I don't know if it's with a mortgage or that. I would assume that the smart thing to do is get it with a mortgage. But honestly, my parents never owned a home, so I don't really understand mortgages. Um, but but like, I'm just like, why? How does I just don't get how that's a good financial decision? One and two, okay. how do you have that much money? Like, none of it is making sense to me. It is a good financial decision for them because the housing market here is growing it's like one of the fastest growing markets in America so if you buy a home and then flip it three years later you can make tens of thousands of dollars it's just a lot to take in yeah I I like found out people at school had like their apartments like bought for them their condos bought for them there's tons of people that I know whose parents are either paying their rent or like if something comes up and they like spend too much money, they can 100% ask their parents for rent money. <laughs> like, mm, okay, <laughs> I see we're in two different universes here. And like law school is so much harder without money. Like, can you imagine if you could like take expensive cycling classes and like eat out whenever you want and like go to really nice grocery stores and like things would be so much better I think but I like really like retail therapy I just don't have the money to like engage in it. <laughs> I think things would be so much better yeah no recently I've started eating uh fruit for breakfast instead of eggs so that's kind of where I am <laughs> me and my three eggs this morning that cost me like 15 dollars <laughs> I was like whoa that's Big ball. I got them last week. <laughs> I'll be real though. I was in California for a month and a half and things are so expensive there compared to Connecticut. I've gotten way too used to living in Connecticut. So like when I came back, the eggs like prices did not seem that bad to me because it was like in comparison, it was still so much lower. I was like, oh, nice. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the, the same with New York. I mean, that I... 
the Airbnb I stayed in didn't have a coffee maker in it. And I was like, oh, that's fine. Like it's the summer, I'll grab coffee at the office. And then on weekends, I'll just buy myself coffee. Like I'm making enough money, I can justify it. Why is a latte like $9 in New York and just the shittiest quality of coffee I've ever tasted in my entire life? That's just crazy. Living in New York was a journey for the two months. Like every, it is so expensive to just like exist. Yeah. It's crazy. It's also like, this is so niche content, but um, to be able to swipe my Metro card and not feel anxiety about it this summer was very weird because I feel like that's at any other time when I was in New York in undergrad, it's like, you're so aware that you're paying $2.75 to get on this subway. And you're like, I don't know, it's only 14 blocks. Maybe I can walk. No, that's right. Re- well, I was on PI. Right. Like, that's yeah. how I felt. <laughs> in New York, I was like, the school gave me like, which like, very lucky. I'm very aware that other schools like don't give their PI students anything not to complain. But at the same time, like $6,000 in New York was enough to pay for everything. But it's like very tight because of how expensive New York is and because of how expensive rent is. And it's like, really, it's, it's very, very crazy. Um, Again, that's a lot more money than other schools get. But it's still like if you go to like, I don't know, South Carolina for the summer or New York, like they're not even like giving you money based off where you're living. They're just like giving you the money period. I mean, even for perspective, like I live in a big city, but not even close to New York city. And for PI, you get 4,800. So like 4,800 to 6,000 is like not enough of a difference for that to make sense for 6,000 to be enough for New York city. You know, (laughs) The, the fact that of our school's my school is like known as the public interest school and gives students $3,000 over summer. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like right now. Um, and it is supposed to be like based on where you're living, but I got the same amount when I applied to do something locally that I wouldn't have to move for and when I would have to move cities and pay rent in two places and they were like yeah it's enough they were like yeah three thousand that's that sounds completely reasonable to me will that cover even three months of rent no no I like really wonder what the decision makers are like doing and thinking because obviously they are under very different life circumstances than the students that they're supposed to be serving. Mm-hmm. So like what are like what are they thinking when they're choosing these like amounts? Like what are they thinking when they're saying that it can change based on where you're going and your needs and stuff? Because the people that fund public interest stuff at my school is not technically the school it's like our specific office and then it's like a student org so the student org does all the fundraising the student org like does all the applications the student org figures out how they're going to put the money together how many people are going to get it and even then like if you are doing something that involves like a commute you can get an extra grant so you can get up to 5800 yeah and it's like if we're able to do that through our students, the school 
is able to do, like if students can organize that, the school most certainly can too. Sort of still in the grade vein, I guess then how are things measured almost? Because people do get the delineated grades, but mm -hmm. it's, I don't know, because you guys don't have rank. So it's almost like there there's no space for a comparison which law school breeds comparison, but there's almost like no space for comparison unless people are like one-on-one -on -one sharing. So like, does that type of thing happen or just like me personally, I avoid it at all costs. So maybe you do too, but. Yeah, I don't think people talk about when there's a really hard class, like legislation is a class that's like very gunnery, very hard. Like if you're a one on that class and you get an H, that, that was really hard to do. So it did get out like which one else got H's, which like if I heard it, it was going around because like I don't hear things again. Mm -hmm. So like those things get out, but you don't know who has all H's. You don't know who doesn't. People don't disclose that. I think the way that we measure like success is first of all, journal. Like I think being on the Yale Law Journal is a big deal. It has nothing to do with your grades, but I think that makes it even more like, wow, you you got in whatever, um, you know, being in the editor of chief of the Yale Law Journal. But more than that, I think because big law is not a big deal at our school, unless you're at like a top three firm, let's say, um, and even PI, like even if you got a Skadden fellowship or whatever, like, yeah, that's really prestigious. But I think for us, like our gold scar, uh, sorry, star is like appellate clerkships. Like that is like not even district like clerkships, like appellate clerkships are like those clerkships that are like the feeder court, you know, that you can then become like a Supreme Court clerk. Like that's the like goal for the people who are gunners. Like that is their like dream or whatever. That's very interesting. That is. It's like the same measures like don't exist. Yeah. Like each school kind of picks like their own measures. Obviously it depends on geographic area because in every city or every, you know, location, there's going to be like those top firms where it's like, if you're there, people are going to assume everything about you. They're going to be like, okay, this person must probably have these grades. They must probably be doing these things. Um, mm -hmm. As far as the law review goes, how do people then get on? Does everybody have to write on then? And that's how they pick. So I didn't try out or whatever the law review, so I'm not super familiar with the process. It, like off the top of my head, and I don't know if this is 100% correct, I know there's like some essay they write. It's like a critical essay or something like that. And I think they're given like three different articles to choose from and you like critique the essay. And then there's like a source site, which is a certain percentage of it. And then there's a diversity statement. I think that's, I think it's just those three. And honestly, like, around out of our class of 200 I think like 150 apply and I think around 50 get in so it's like a pretty high a lot of people get on it's still like hard or whatever but I think it's easier than other schools because other schools I've heard it's like grades and a very small amount of people or whatever yeah at UNC grades make up almost the entire the entire oh, wow. thing you get on mm -hmm. for us after 1L the top 10 gets invited so you get invited on or if you have like a really good grade in writing I believe you get invited on as well and then you can either accept or be like no thanks and then based on who accepts and how many spaces they have left then they open the write-on and then the write-on happens in the summer and then people get picked and appointed and stuff but it's it was really interesting coming back to well and seeing who tried to write on to which journal and like who didn't get it I'm thinking of somebody specific, but somebody wrote on to this journal 
and they in a way sort of have a reputation I know they have good grades though and they didn't get it and I was like whoa like that's an example of somebody's like reputation ruining opportunities for them I will say like there's not a lot of things I like about my school will like say oh wow we do this really well I love the way the law journal gets chosen yeah I also think like it's really easy as a 1L to think that the people doing best are the gunners but in my experience the people doing best are not the gunners that's really real too yeah the people who grade onto law review like the I love the people on law review at my school. Did I want to be on law review? Absolutely not. But like, I love that for them. <laughs> True. I I knew coming into law school that that was not of interest to me. I think I knew from the jump I was going to be like very hardcore into pro bono. And I was like, that's what I'm going to prioritize. And the, the journals are not it for me. But it's so funny because since I was so vocal about like, if you know it's not for you, like don't do it like don't waste your time find something else to like truly get involved in that you enjoy and some people that I know who were like in orgs with me when they had to do like their their sourcing and like all sorts of stuff one of them came up to me and she was like all I keep thinking about is the fact that you said like no free labor and here I am doing all this free labor that I don't even want to do anymore and I was like sometimes you don't know till you try <laughs> yeah, yeah it is a lot of a lot of because I'm on a secondary journal and that's nothing compared to like our main journal and when I had to do like prepare source all these different things I was like oh my god this is a lot and that was for a journal I like cared about and so I was like like, it's a lot of work it's a ton of work and I think like I don't know the there's so much pressure to do journal at a certain range of schools I don't know if this is the same at any like lower ranked schools, but at UNC, there's almost this sense of like, well, you don't know what doors you're closing by not doing a journal. Yeah. And when you are kind of on one of these like cusp schools where a lot of people from UNC can get into big law, a lot of people from UNC can get federal clerkships, but like you have to do the right things. You have to have the right grades. You have to be on a journal. You have to do these things. So a lot of people just do a journal because my cat's opening my door. A lot of people just do a journal because they're afraid that there's no other option for them. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the journals, law review, um, moot court, mock trial, I think those activities are really viewed as sort of like resume builders in a sense. Like if you're somebody who does not think your grades measure up to the opportunities that you want to get, you are 100% pressured to pursue one or more of those activities to almost like obviously to make your resume look better. Like that's the whole point in the end is like to make your resume as desirable as possible to these future employers. And I mean, as somebody who doesn't think my grades are like a huge barrier to the opportunities that I'm interested in, I'm not going to go out of my way to do those things that I know would literally decrease my quality of life so much. Like I'm, I'm choosing not to do those things because one, I don't think I need them. And two, I'm so severely not interested in them that I'm not going to take like the risk of spending so much time on that, that it makes the other things in my life like 
not as successful, you know? I think, I think even at, I think at my school, because we have no grades, like joining, like, or like getting into a law journal, it's like so much pressure to do it because it's like, that is the gold star at our school. And like, I spent so much time regretting not even trying out because after that I felt all this pressure I'm like oh my god well like what if I want a clerk or like I'm trying to get into federal public defense like it's also and it was totally fine it's been totally fine but I think that like that pressure that you feel from everyone around you freaking out about it like naturally makes you freak out about it and I hate that about law school it happens so much and it's so annoying (laughs) it does First, I don't feel like I know a lot of people who, which this kind of ties back into the episode. Like, I don't know a ton of people who like come from non-traditional or like not elite backgrounds at my school, nor do I have a lot of like three L's who do either. So it just feels like a very like floating existence of like the 15 people you can meet at this school who like you can connect with, but we're all struggling. So we don't really know how to help each other. Does Yale have a mentorship program? We do like we have a lot of different kind of mentorship stuff like when we have like a small group which is like our section I think it's called our 1L and it's like 16 students and we have like three L's who are like our Coker fellows or we have other mentorship opportunities but like if you don't connect with the people who are mentors I think it's really hard um, to like get advice that you feel like works for you or like connect I've gone to like a lot of coffees with people and like people are super super nice like no one's mean but it's like I haven't really found people I could like connect through through any of the mentorship stuff at the school or even like the alumni um, connections that they made for me and I've talked to like I felt always like really out of place and like not able to like connect, which like I, I think I'm like a pretty personable like per- like I feel like I can connect with people pretty easily but like in these environments I just like feel like a fish out of water yeah do you think that environment leads non-traditional students at Yale to kind of hide their background? And that's yeah. why it's harder to connect? I I think like, yes and no. I think it depends. I do know people who come from non-traditional backgrounds, like I, like are low income or even went to community college and they don't ever bring it up. And they're somehow are tapped into the whisper network or like made it their goal to be and they have been able to like work their way up and basically because like really when you're here like if you do the right things like you can be as well off as like someone you know who comes from an elite background it, it it changes you like you you really changes you as a person I think you need a really specific kind of personality like I don't think I could ever do that and um, I think if you choose not to do that like you're not going to be successful in the ways that other people are because like to do things that people care about, like let's say be a Supreme Court clerk, you have to accept the status quo. You have to go with the flow and like be really accepting of things that could be racist or classist or sexist. And like, that's just like not something a lot of, I mean, clearly a lot of people can do, but that's just not something I could do. So I think when I came here, I like really realized like, whoa, I don't want to do that or hang out with people just because they you know their parents are ex and what like I just don't think I can do that but a lot of people do and it's a choice they make and like honestly like it's probably going to change their lives and now they're like kind of in the one percent because they did those things right I I feel like that kind of applies across the board just like in different ways obviously at lower rank schools it's not the same because it's not as like elite of a field that's coming in but it kind of goes back to 
the assumption that happens when you get to law school that once you're there, everybody around you could be a potential block to your future or like could open doors for you. So like you never want to, you know, get in really bad with somebody. You don't want to like burn any bridges. You know, you don't want to be like the villain in any situation, essentially, because you don't want to create a reputation for yourself where if in the future you apply to a job where somebody who maybe graduated the year before you works and they see that you went to the same law school, they hand them your resume and maybe that person doesn't like you and they're like, "Mm, I wouldn't give them an interview. And then you get stiffed because for whatever reason, that person had an issue with you. Like that part of the legal field is so wild to me because there are so many awful people who get away with awful things who continue to have good opportunities. Yeah. And I also think there's like a pressure to just know everyone, like just be very, like at my school, there's like so there, like the first few, so like at our school, we do credit fail one L fall because they say we want you guys to be social. They're like, you guys should be social and get to know each other. Me personally, like the first week of school was like a jarring experience for me. And I like never socialized after. It was just like, I hid in my room with my three friends and like, we were hanging out us and like, I was not going to these events anymore, but wow, people were like out every weekend, getting to know each other. Like everyone wanted to know everyone. There was this like one guy who was emailing every single person in the 1L class to like get coffee with them. Like there's who's going to be like a president or a senator or this or that. And like, I certainly don't have issues with anyone because I'm a passive person and I don't care. Like, I just, I just feel like I'm nice and passive. So I don't have issues with people, but I'm also not trying to get to know I'm right. an introvert, like I'm not, but there's so much pressure, like, oh, why are you not talking to this person? It's like, what? I just want to be a public defender. Like, I'm not trying to, <laughs> like, like, I'm not trying to do all these different things, but yeah, there's so much pressure to be social, which is like an introvert's worst nightmare. Okay. So more on the lighter note stuff. Um, you've talked about working in PI for essentially like the last five years. You did federal public defense in New York City this past summer. What do you see yourself doing after graduation? Because I know you have a job for next summer already. So are you hoping you get that job? Are you hoping to stay area-wise, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, after law school, I definitely want to work in public defense. Um, I think right now it might be federal if I can, like, the job I'm at does hire after law school, knock on wood, I hope. Um, And if not, I would just look like look for a public defender job, but I really want to go back to California. So I'm hoping I can find something in California, even if it's hard. Um, But yeah, I want to do public defense and that's what I see myself doing. Yeah. Yeah. I know you've talked quite a bit on your TikTok about how difficult the move to Connecticut was. (laughs) I'm very annoying about it. Can you just talk a little bit? Because I think that's like an underrated aspect of how hard all of this can be. Just like you're dealing with this really weird life event. Yeah. While completely isolating yourself from your entire support system. Yeah, I think. So I was like born and raised in Southern California, which I do think Southern California is its own experience because like we don't have seasons. It's sunny all year. We have beautiful weather. And then like for undergrad, I moved to LA. So I was like two hours from my like city and my support system. I did not know what the East Coast was like. So I didn't get to like visit Connecticut before moving here because of COVID. I had only ever been to New York once 
and have never been to any other states because like my family's not from here so like uh, no one lives in different states we all live in California because we're immigrants um they could not have imagined what Connecticut uh was like um I don't want to like hate on the state of Connecticut but it's just a really different experience I think I have a really soft spot for New Haven now just because now I'm more like involved in the community outside of the Yale bubble but everything first of all is so old here like I have never seen built like buildings are from like the 1800s 1900s like in California I feel like everything's a lot new do you see this like ri- I did not know this was like first of all I don't I've never used a heater but like second of all this like burns me when I touch it so I like did not know what these things were winter was the when I tell you I got so depressed and didn't even realize it because there's also no sun in Connecticut. I don't know if they tell you this about this state, but there's no sun. (laughs) I randomly started breaking out into rashes in the winter because I didn't realize you have to like moisturize more. So there were just so many little things where I was like, what is happening? And so, and then also like my family just like, they don't get it. Like my dad is from the South of Iran. My mom is from the South of Mexico and they're living in Southern California. These people have never been in weather like colder than 50 degrees. And like, they don't understand, like when I go home, they're like, oh my God, put on a jacket. It's 50 degrees. I was like, you guys don't know what I go through. Over here. <laughs> like you really just don't. But I think now I am really appreciative of being in Connecticut because of the cost of living. We can't ignore, it's just so beautiful. And Oddly, I think it's nice to be kind of secluded during my law school experience because it's really allowed me to focus on school. And I think like being from an immigrant family, there's so much pressure to be around. And I don't feel that, obviously, because I'm like so far away. But that move was probably the hardest. But just the move and then being in this environment was very hard. And I think that's why I like 2L more than 1L, even though 2L is harder. But it's like now I get where I am. I understand it. I'm ready for the winter and moisturizing. I got aqua like, I'm ready so to take you, it on. When you started posting about it, I was like, oh my gosh, this girl is like having culture shock, like <laughs> coastal culture shock. Like it's so different. No, it's also the people are different. I'll say people are so serious on the East Coast. Like, I don't know what's like, people really need to like calm down and like relax. Like it's not. I don't know, maybe I'm just like too Californian, but people are just like, just take things very seriously here. And it's, it's a lot. The diversity has been cool though, because in California, everyone's Mexican, like left, right, Mexican, Mexican. Here, people like Puerto Rican from Guatemala, like Ecuador, like I've been meeting a lot of different, la- so that's been cool. Like the diversity is different. And I mean, it's very white, but I'm talking about like the Latinx community. <laughs> Oh, something that was different from Wendell, though, is your partner moved to Connecticut with you. Oh, yeah, yeah. He actually moved in the middle of my Wendell fall. Oh, my gosh. That was way earlier than I remember. Holy shit. What, a, what an experience that was for both of us, because he had never visited the U.S., didn't speak English, had never been here. And he goes from the south of Mexico to Connecticut. <laughs> Love him for that. But it was an experience for both of us because I was very much like depressed and dissociating because 1L fall and he was very much like, it was just like a rough, it it didn't affect our relationship. Like we actually were like made us stronger, but like easily. Oh, and where he's from, it's 80 degrees year round, like a hundred in the summer. Like we experienced this trauma together 
maybe we're traumatized. I don't know. <laughs> but when he went to San Diego, like California is basically Mexico, Southern California. He was like really happy. So that made me happy because I was like, okay, someday we'll hopefully move to California together. But yeah, it was, it was quite the experience, but honestly, such a blessing. Cause I feel like I didn't have anyone here and then I did, but I also was able to do like a couple months of one all on my own, live on my own and do all that. But it's been really nice, surprisingly. Things like I think like you need an independent partner in law school though. If you want to like live, like your partner cannot be dependent on you. They need to like be such an independent and confident and secure man <laughs> to live with you during law school. Yeah. I <laughs> Soph was saying the other day she was making fun of people who made schedules for their partners and was like we can only hang out during this time and I was like yes. and I was like I totally did that <laughs> yes because there's hardos who are like I can only see you on this weekend at these times and then otherwise no <laughs> for me it was like I wanted to set out time to be with him or else I would just get so caught up that I would never do it <laughs> I should do th- I never thought it because like honestly a lot of time I don't spend a lot of time with him I'm gonna be so real like one of my other new year's resolutions big new year's resolution girl was to spend more time with like doing dates and stuff right but it just never happens because we're so busy That's fair. Okay. but it is very funny I feel like it goes back into the like the dating in law school stuff, which is its own episode that we just haven't been able to do yet. We need to remember that. that. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Um, something else that you talked about a lot last year and this year is the food and like the availability of food that you want to eat and would like to cook in Connecticut is extremely different from California. I would say first and foremost, I didn't have a car my one L year. So that definitely made things harder. First, I'll just say the East Coast in general, even New York, I'll say it, even New York, like does not have as much diversity of food that's like good, authentic food of those cultures. Like one example that's coming to mind is like pho. Like the East Coast does not have good pho. And I talked to my friend who's Vietnamese. She's like, yeah, they're like, no one makes good pho on the East Coast. Like all Vietnamese people, we are in California. And that's, so it's like, I'm just used to having like, an Asian grocery market, like right down the street, a Mexican one, like just all these different things and like really fresh produce. Because like in California, you can go to the 99 cent store and buy beautiful produce, like produce, obviously, because like we're like a farm state or whatever. But here it's like really crazy. It's like kind of near Yale's a food desert, which is, which is tea because something we talked about in our clinic was that that might be purposeful on Yale's part to keep New Haven residents away from Yale students, which is like, a whole other conversation to talk about the design of Yale and something we talk a lot a lot about in my clinic. But yeah, I think now that I have a car, I've been able to drive further and like find my Mexican grocery stores or even like Asian <laughs> grocery stores and things like that. So that was, that was definitely like a car issue. But yeah, I do feel like the the food here, like there's no Japanese barbecue or like Korean barbecue or like different things that I'm like very used to and was very privileged to have. So like I get sad sometimes, but. <laughs> I'm kind of being a brat about it but no I get it because I mean I we were both in New York over summer and also I don't know why we didn't meet up um, I know you asked me about it but I'm so introverted and shy I was like should I reach out should I not and then I just never did about it. And <laughs> I literally asked you and Shirley 
about it before I went there. And then I felt like the entire summer was a whirlwind and I didn't end up getting to meet with like anyone. Um, but like, everyone's like, oh my God, like the food in New York is so amazing. There are so many options, anything you want, you can get. And it's like, get me a decent Chinese food place. <laughs> like, uh-huh. there aren't any. There was so much. The, the only good thing New York has is this really good taco place, which when I went to New York the first time I tried it and I talked to the people, the owners, and they're from Tijuana. So it's like, it's really good. It's called Los Tacos Number One. You're going to live in New York. So like you have to go there. They're very good tacos. But besides that, I was like, everything is double the price and half as good. But also I was in like the Upper West Side. I really think that was the problem. I mean, like, I, yeah. That, that, cause like I talked to Shirley about it because I was like, what is going on? She's like, you're in the Upper West Side. I was like, true. <laughs> so I think, I think that was our issue. It's, I was in the Upper West Side for the first half of it. And I, the food in Brooklyn was much, much better than the food on the Upper West Side. Um, but even at that, like, I don't know, maybe it's, it's also like, I've lived in the South for so long now. North Carolina is huge on barbecue. Like you cannot get good barbecue in New York. It's terrible because who has the the space to have like a huge ass smoker in New York City? So it's just like, I don't know. I was a, I was a tad bit disappointed in the food. Um, I feel like I sort of like grew up thinking that all the big cities would have everything and like in the right ways if that makes sense like all the big cities would have those populations would have like those authentic foods would have those cultural experiences and then you actually get older and you realize like they really don't like they're really centralized populations of people and like either you have it or you don't and maybe you're somewhere where you get really lucky and there's like a family that moves up that knows how to make a certain type of food and maybe they open a restaurant or something but if like there's nobody like that you just simply do not live in a place where you ever get to experience that food it's so it's wild Mm -hmm. it's crazy okay to end on a positive note what has been the best part about attending Yale I think the best part has been being able to like I wrote this down represent a perspective that's like never represented I think that's like meant a lot to me and it's definitely like something that really means a lot to me and why I will try to like share those perspectives in class and then also like what it has meant to like my immigrant family, I think has been like really beautiful and things like that. So like, even though there's a lot of stuff I don't like, I do think it's like worth it to be here. And I hope more students from marginalized backgrounds get here and we can create systems of support for them when they do get here. But yeah. Very true. I think you even put on your story the other day, like how much you appreciate the represent the representation that Shakira has, because there's not a lot of representation for like mixed Latino and Middle Eastern people. Yeah. Who aren't mixed with white. Like a lot of mixed people are like half that, half white. But yeah, she's my queen. She's like everything to me. <laughs> <laughs> you can be the you can be the lawyer version of Shakira. <laughs> you can be Shakira's lawyer. Aim for the moon. <laughs> in a heartbeat, literally. I would change my entire profession to be a lawyer in a heartbeat. <laughs> All right.
that's all for this week's episode of The In-Laws. Make sure to follow us on IG at The In-Laws Pod. We post these full-length episodes every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. So make sure to follow and rate the podcast through whichever streaming service you're listening on. And don't forget to follow Ava at avafock.law on Instagram and TikTok. Talk to you next week. Bye.